Chapter 33 The Last Chapter of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 33 A very handsome motor car was drawn up outside the physician's door. The chauffeur touched his hat and smiled as Bliss and his wife emerged. A footman held open the door. "'Glad to see you again, Hayes,' Bliss said pleasantly. "'Car going all right?' "'Considering it's been slung up in the garage for twelve months, sir, it's going very well.' "'We'll soon get it in running order again,' Bliss declared, as he handed Francis in. "'We shall be going down to the south of France for a few weeks.' The door was closed, the man sprang to his place, and the car glided off. Francis was looking now almost terrified. "'Don't tell me too much all at once,' she implored. "'But tell me, is this car yours?' "'No, it's ours,' Bliss replied. "'Now listen to me, dear. It's time you knew the truth. Twelve months ago I was feeling out of sorts. I was rich, lazy, and selfish.' I was sitting up too late at night, eating too much, drinking too much, smoking too much, with nothing to occupy my thoughts or my mind but my own pleasure. My nerves gave out. I went to see that man whom we have just left. I wasn't the sort of patient he cared for. He told me just about as brutally as he could exactly what he thought of me and my manner of life, and he practically showed me the door. When I held out my hand to say good morning, he refused to shake hands. He wouldn't prescribe for me. The only advice he would give me was to go out and earn my own living for twelve months. He added that he believed me incapable of such an effort. I lost my temper. I bet him that for twelve months I would earn my own living without touching a penny of my own money except a five-pound note. That twelve months is up today, and I have won my bet. The bet was twenty-five thousand pounds for his hospital, against a shake of the hand and an apology. And you saw him, Francis. He paid. He paid like a man. And you, she faltered, all the time you were rich? You could have paid the twenty-five thousand pounds? I could have paid it many times over, Bliss admitted. In fact, I have just given that sum to the hospital. I'm afraid you will think me a terrible fraud. But don't you see the position I was in? If ever I touched my own money, I had to be careful that no benefit came to me. I saw that nothing but capital would save Mr. Masters, so I got it and pushed his cooking stoves. But after that I had to leave him. I saved that heel manufacturer from bankruptcy. But directly I had advanced the money, I had to go. You were my most severe problem. I was dying to save you from distress and suffering. And on the other hand, I had one great ambition, and that was to win you as a poor man, to have you marry me knowing nothing, and then to try and make life as much like a fairy story as I could. She began to cry softly. "'Don't take any notice of me for a few minutes,' she begged. "'Life has been so hard lately, and I was beginning to lose even hope.' 
Presently they drew up at Arlton Court. The porter received Bliss with a glance of astonishment at his attire, but with marked deference. They mounted to the fourth floor. Bliss touched the bell. A very subdued close opened the door. Mr. Crawley was waiting in the hall. "'Here we are at last!' he exclaimed, holding out his hand with an air of immense relief. "'My dear Bliss, I'm delighted to see you. I've obeyed all your instructions to the letter, and have asked no questions. May I be introduced?' "'This is Mr. Crawley, Francis,' Bliss said. "'My lawyer and very good friend. I've driven him nearly mad during the last twelve months, but I think that he will forgive me when he knows all about it. A very remarkable young man, your husband, my dear Mrs. Bliss, Mr. Crawley declared, as he shook hands. I must confess that at times his exploits during the last year have caused me some anxiety. With one of them, however, I am now thoroughly disposed to sympathise. Frances, still a little shy, gave him her hand with a very sweet smile. They passed on into the dining-room, where the cloth was laid for lunch. Mr. Crawley rang the bell. Uh, "'Mrs. Crawley,' he said, "'has engaged a maid for your wife, and the suite has been got ready as well as possible. This way.' He escorted them to the door of a wonderful little boudoir, which opened into a bedroom. A neatly dressed maid came respectfully forward. The bedroom was a wonderful sight. Every article of furniture in it was piled with boxes. "'I don't think I have forgotten anything,' Mr. Crawley went on, glancing at his notebook. Lavillians have sent up a dozen morning gowns and half a dozen evening ones, and their fitter and dressmaker will be here in an hour's time. The other things you wanted from Bond Street are all here on approval. Will Madame breakfast first, or would she like her bath prepared? the maid asked quietly. Francis looked at Bliss. Her lips quivered. He passed his arm through hers. "'You can prepare Madame's bath in half an hour,' he directed, "'and make a selection of clothes for the morning. "'Come along, dear. "'I think it is time we drank one another's health "'in something better than the medoc you used to grudge me so.' "'Open some champagne clothes,' Bliss ordered, "'as they passed back into the dining-room. "'Now, Mr. Crawley, if you like, here's my story.' He told it in a few words. The lawyer listened silently to the end, and when it was finished he wrung his client's hand. "'Mr. Bliss,' he declared, "'you have taken my breath away. All I can say is that I wish you both the happiness you deserve.' "'We'll drink to it,' Bliss said, holding up his glass. "'I drink—' "'Both your healths, my dear young people,' the lawyer continued. "'Yours is a marriage which has begun in romance. "'You have both had your share of life's hardships. 
you have both something to remember all your days. And I, Mr. Crawley concluded, as he took up his hat, shall never forget how well your husband, my dear Mrs. Bliss, looked on the box-seat of a motor omnibus. He took his leave a few minutes later. For the first time they were alone. Frances turned towards her husband. "'I can't believe it,' she faltered. "'I shall never get used to it all.' He laughed reassuringly. Then he drew her slowly towards him. She seemed to have become curiously passive. "'Dearest,' he said, "'it's all quite true. You are rich, just as rich as you want to be. You can send your sisters abroad whenever you want to. You can give them a home. Ruth can go to Dresden for her singing lessons, and Elsie can be sent wherever you like, on the Riviera. We might take her with us.' She was crying quietly but underneath it all Bliss could see the tremulous happiness in her face. "'It's too wonderful,' she whispered, clinging passionately to him. "'The most wonderful thing of all,' he whispered, "'is our two selves. That you are my wife, Francis, and that I love you as I never believed I could love anyone.' Her arms tightened around his neck. For the moment she forgot everything else. Then there came a discreet knock at the door. The maid entered. "'Everything is ready for madame,' she announced. Twenty-two exceedingly well-groomed young men were awaiting the arrival of Bliss and his wife that evening in the Venetian room at the Milan restaurant. Honiton, who was in charge of the proceedings, was a little nervous. "'You don't suppose there's any chance of his not turning up?' Freddy Lancaster asked him. "'Not the slightest,' Honiton declared. "'He'll be here all right, but, Freddy, I don't know whether you fellows all understand. I'm not sure that he even has a suit of evening clothes to his name. He was looking like nothing on earth when I saw him last.' The young man whom he was addressing smoothed out his tie complacently. "'Poor old Ernie,' he sighed. "'Hooked up to a girl, too. I say, you fellows, when do you think we ought to make the presentation?' "'Soon as possible, of course. Don't keep him in anxiety too long. I should think he'd enjoy his dinner better if he knew that there was a thousand of the best waiting for him.' The door of the room was suddenly opened, and a servant announced Mr. and Mrs. Bliss. The general feeling when they appeared was one of surprise. Bliss was as well and carefully dressed as any of them. He was looking a little thinner and older, perhaps, but he carried himself in a more dignified and serious manner. Frances, too, was not what they expected. She was dressed in a simple but wonderfully made white evening gown, and around her neck hung a string of pearls which looked amazingly like real ones. After the first shock they all crowded round him, and Bliss found himself shaking hands with an amazing number of his quondam companions. The awkwardness which many of them had dreaded was dispelled almost from the first by Bliss himself. He chatted gaily with everyone, 
and referred to past events without the slightest doleful allusion to the catastrophe which was supposed to have overtaken him. Presently dinner was announced. They all sat at a round table, and Bliss laughingly refused to be parted from Francis. He told them all his secret, that he had only been married this morning. In the midst of the drinking of healths, which naturally followed the announcement, Honiton arose. "'Ernest Bliss,' he said, "'and you fellows, just a word.' "'I'm not much of a hand at speech-making, but this is a gathering of one or two of your old friends, Bliss, who are sorry to hear that the luck has gone, and who have put their heads together, remembering the good times you used to give us all, and want you to accept a little wedding present from us. That's all, old chap. We've only taken subscriptions from those who insisted upon giving.' and I've got to ask you to accept this little cheque, and I hope, for the sake of Mrs. Ernest, uh, you won't refuse. Honiton sat down with an air of immense self-satisfaction and some relief. Bliss rose to his feet and faced them all. The cheque was passed up and lay open before him. He was a little pale, but his voice was wonderfully firm. Honiton, he began, and you others, my dear friends, I stand before you a guilty man. It is true that I have been in the direst poverty for the last twelve months, that I have worked for my living in many strange ways, but nevertheless I have a confession to make to you. The position was entirely a voluntary one. I never lost a penny of my money. I am richer today than I ever was. Far richer, he added, touching Francis' shoulder. There was a little murmur of amazement, some ejaculations of wonder. You must let me explain, Bliss went on. The fact is, I found out that I had been living a thoroughly selfish, ill-regulated life, and I was badly run down. Twelve months ago today, I went to Sir James Aldroyd, and explained my symptoms to him, he treated me very brusquely. He wouldn't even trouble to prescribe for me. He told me as plainly as he could that he had no sympathy with young men who lost their health pleasure-seeking. He said a few things which stung me to the quick. When I turned to leave he pretended not to see my hand. The only advice he would give me was to earn my living for twelve months and he gave me pretty clearly to understand that he did not think me capable of the job. Well, I took him on. I laid him twenty-five thousand pounds for his hospital to the shake of a hand and an apology that I went off that morning with a five-pound note and earned my living for twelve months entirely on my own. And I did. That's the secret of my disappearance. I was hard at it, earning enough to keep myself going. I did it somehow or other. The twelve months are up today. I've been to see Aldroyd, and he has paid up. Your money, my dear friends, Bliss went on, his voice shaking a little, you must please take back. But your dinner and your greetings to my wife and myself are things which I shall 
never forget. I thank heaven for the memory of this gathering, and that you fellows have thought it worth while to do this, and I trust that for many years in the future, on the anniversary of this night, you will all consider yourselves my guests. So the mystery of Bliss's disappearance was explained away at last. He resumed his seat amidst loud cheers and general stupefaction. Honiton himself was almost dazed. "'Jolly plucky thing, I call it,' he kept on repeating. "'Little Ernie Bliss, too.' They chaffed Honiton unmercifully. "'You're a nice discoverer of poverty-stricken pals,' one of them declared. "'No one's lost anything by it that I know of,' Honiton retorted. "'You'll get your money back. You've had a thundering good dinner. And I know now where my windfall came from. Once more before we part, long life and happiness to Mr. and Mrs. Ernest Bliss.' They passed out of the hotel a short time later, down the carpeted stairs, into the very luxurious motor-car which was waiting. They glided off into the strand, and passed within a few yards of the spot where Frances had turned to go down to Mr. Montague's office. She leaned back amongst the cushions, and looked out into the streets. Life was suddenly new and wonderful. The dull weight of care had fallen away. She remembered her many lectures on economy to bliss, and she burst into a happy little laugh. "'It's the same London, isn't it, Ernest?' she murmured. "'The Drury Lane Café is somewhere up there, and you came along here on your omnibus a few hours ago.' "'It's the same London,' he assured her. "'Only I hope that to both of us it will always be a different place.' "'Those fellows to-night have taught me a lesson, Francis. "'Those fellows and some of the people I've met during the last twelve months. "'I want to try and do something for the many thousands who are up against it, as we were. "'Tomorrow I have all sorts of schemes. "'Tonight—tonight,' tonight,' he added, leaning towards her and taking her hand in his, "'belongs to our two selves.' The End End of chapter 33 and End of The Curious Quest by E. Phillips Oppenheim Read by Adrian Pretzelis in Santa Rosa, California, November 2021